it kind of sucks. We humans really aren't great at learning. We forget easily. I've probably said the words, my brain feels like a sieve, hundreds of times as I rack my brain for some tiny piece of information that I just know is in there somewhere, but I just can't seem to retrieve it. And there's more challenges. By the time you finish listening to this podcast, there'll probably be about five new blog posts, 24 tweets with links to recommended learning resources, two YouTube videos on emergency procedures, three New England papers related to EM, and maybe even a 2,000-page emergency medicine textbook published. Okay, maybe not all that, but every day, the ratio between what you know and what you can know shrinks. It's academic quicksand. The more you struggle to stay afloat, the worse it gets. Now, I know it's a cliche, but learning emergency medicine really is a journey, not a destination. So in the spirit of reconciling ourselves to the fact that we can't know everything, unless your name is Walter Himmel, today we borrow from some of the best educators in the EM world who answered a simple question I asked on Twitter. What are your top tips for retaining knowledge in EM? Keep your learning active. Teach. Quiz yourself. Write out what you know. Simulate in a lab and in your mind. Track your misses and review those topics. Debrief difficult cases with your colleagues. Because if it's passive and easy, it isn't working. You need to really chase down every case that you see, every patient you admit, especially when you have diagnoses that you're not quite sure about. Find out what happened on the inpatient stay. Find out what happened to those patients and follow up. Once you learn something, teach it. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Use successive relearning. The idea of self-testing until you can correctly recall the knowledge and then doing it in the future on multiple occasions. Read Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. It's a great book. You won't regret it. Easy to read. Learning should be difficult. When it's easy and passive, we probably aren't retaining as much. Teach always continuously teaching to really learn the content, really solidify it in your mind. And if you can teach it to someone else, then you probably understand it really well. Make sure you ask questions because we've always done it this way is just not enough. Use reflection, the metacognitive process that gives us a better understanding of ourselves and our situations to inform future action. As John Dewey said, we do not learn from experience, we learn from reflecting on experience. So this is the challenge. How do we maximize our learning in the face of an ever-growing body of knowledge and procedure skill set so that we can become better doctors? We need to understand and think about what the most effective learning strategies are. And spoiler alert here, there is no one learning theory that's the magic bullet. So to help us achieve a deeper understanding of how we learn, strategies to improve the way we learn, and the future of learning in emergency medicine, it's my pleasure to welcome back to EM Cases, Jonathan Sherbino from McMaster University. He's the chair of EM at the Royal College and the assistant dean of education research at Mac, and also the host of the fantastic Key Lime podcast. Welcome, John. Thanks, Anton. I'm really excited to be here. And back on the EM cases for the third time, I believe, is MedEd guru Rick Pensner, the head of education at North York General, who you may remember from episode 98, Teaching on Shift, and episode 80, 
presentation skills. Welcome, Rick. Thank you for having me back, Anton. Before we jump into the strategies of how best to learn, I want to first talk about the myths about learning. And there's quite a few out there. So let's just take turns going back and forth. What are some of the common myths about how we learn? Uh, Dr. Pensioner? Probably one of them that I hear over and over again is about learning styles. So we all remember our learning styles, uh, that we have a preferred learning style, whether it be auditory or visual or tactile or kinesthetic. And that is that if teachers teach to the style that is consistent with what the learner's preferred style is, that they're going to learn better. And an entire industry has built up around assessing learning styles. While we certainly might have a preference as to how we want to study or how we want to learn, there's actually no good evidence that this preference results in effective learning. So it's a myth. Yeah, so there's lots of people who say they like listening to podcasts rather than reading. And there's lots of people who say, oh, no, I'm a reader. I don't listen to podcasts. So one of my favorite ones is the idea of the adult learner, as if your brain as an adult is a far different phenomenon than somebody who might be in their early 20s. Now, certainly we know that children, as they develop cognitively, um, they go through different phases. But the idea of an adult learning theory, which was purported by Malcolm Knowles, really isn't a theory. There's no empirical evidence around it. There's nothing special that happens once you are in debt with a mortgage or you're starting your first job. Somehow you're a better learner, more motivated, more time on task. You have different cognitive abilities. You have the same intrinsic abilities as when you're early in your medical school training as when you are well-established in your clinical practice. All right, so learning styles doesn't really apply. There might be preferences there. Adult learning theory is kind of BS. What's the next myth? Okay, I got another one. We're all familiar with the learning pyramid or the cone of learning. So we know that triangle that we see everywhere where at the top of the triangle is reading, at the bottom of the triangle is when we teach others, and then it says has percentages of how much we retain after two weeks of each of those teaching methods. So then there's lecture, is 10%, and we work our way down. So that is a myth. It's actually not based on any evidence. It was invented in the 1940s as part of a training program and it's been perpetuated ever since as actually being fact. It's an appealing concept, the notion of active learning, but we really need to be a little bit skeptical when we start seeing things that are so tidy with perfect percentages. It's a myth. All right. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about active learning and specifically what does work with active learning. Uh, but yeah, that, that pyramid, and I, I have to admit, I've been guilty of using that pyramid before, mostly just to help motivate people to interact uh, and be active in their, in their learning. What's up next? So I'll uh, jump in on something we're probably going to touch a bit later. It's the idea of the 10,000 rule. And so this idea of you do 10,000 hours of something, you're good. And that's BS. And we'll discuss it a little bit more. But the Gipper um, is probably the best quote. It's not practice makes perfect. Only perfect practice makes perfect. And so we need to get an understanding of you can do it the same way over and over and over again. But without uh, a coach or a teacher deconstructing what you're doing, you just emulate bad pattern after bad pattern for 10,000 hours. And then I can tell you, you're not going to be an expert. We'll be talking a lot about deliberate practice. What about illusions of knowing? Let me jump in there. So um, we'll probably talk later about the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is just a cool name. And, And it's the idea of you have a real poor self-assessment. 
all of us. And so if we are hypercritical and we think that we can't do something well, in fact, often the opposite is true. It's just that we have such a high standard for ourselves that we say any little deficit is a reflection that our actual performance is really poor. The converse is more dangerous for the very novice practitioner to assume, ah, I've got it all figured out. And they don't see the massive lacoon of their own inability. And so they walk around thinking, ah, emergency medicine can't be that hard. I'm in my second year of residency. I must have figured it all out. And there's no further gaps except for a bit more time for me to complete. So the idea that we don't know what we don't know. So I got one, Anton. So digital natives, we hear this over and over again. And that's the concept that our students, our residents, our young physicians who were born in an age when uh, digital media was everywhere, is everywhere, that somehow they are different than our previous generations when it comes to technology and learning. That these millennials, that they can process information and multitask from many different technology sources. So this is actually a myth. It's not based on any evidence. It's based on an article that was originally written in 2001. It's been a Again, propagated since. There's been a few books. And uh, there's no real good evidence that different than what's in the room here, digital immigrants, the three of us, are any different in the way that we learn with technology than digital natives. All right. So those are some of the myths. There's learning styles. This idea of the learning pyramid has never really had any evidence. The digital natives, adult learning theory, the 10,000 hour rule. Um, It's a lot of stuff floating out there that really we shouldn't be living by in terms of how we learn emergency medicine. Those are some of the things that don't work for optimal learning. Let's shift our attention to what does work. So Dr. Pensner, this might sound like a simple question with an obvious answer, but I'll ask it anyways. What is learning? Wow. So simple question, complex topic. And so I think at a brain level, learning is going to be the result of establishing these uh, connections, these neural pathways. And it's going to involve processing information. It could be knowledge. It could be skills, behaviors, attitudes that ultimately we hope will result in a change in behavior. So some experts refer to learning essentially as being the storage of information and then the retrieval of information at a later time in order to change behavior. And the science of all of this, this whole sort of study is what we popularly refer to now as as learning science. You'll hear a lot of that in the literature these days. All right. So it's about processing the information first and then retrieving it later. And I think that's kind of a pretty good framework for the rest of the discussion. So really, it's about changing your behavior so that you optimize the storage of information and changing your behavior to optimize the retrieval of information. So assuming that learning is about a change in behavior, and in order to change that behavior, learners need to store information and at a later time retrieve that information, what does the science tell us about how to improve storage strength and how to improve retrieval strength? So Dr. Sherbino, let's start with improving the processing of information. Say we read a book or an article or listen to a podcast or a lecture. How do we improve the processing of getting that information into our little brains? We have our sensory memory, which is what you hear and what you see and what you can smell, etc. And you need to have attention to all of those inputs. And so the vast majority of the inputs that we have as we go through our practice in emergency medicine or sit in a classroom, most of it we ignore. But you have attention to some kind of stimulus or cue. That 
is then in our working memory, which has a finite capacity. And the issue is, is that you can easily be overwhelmed when you have too many inputs. And so that leads to poor um, coding of that information, of that stimulus in from your working memory into your long-term memory. Now, your long-term memory presumably, as best we understand, is has an infinite storage capacity. You don't need to buy more RAM or more um, hard drive space. It can hold things infinitely. I'm presuming, of course, you don't drink too much, you don't get a head injury, and you don't get microvascular disease. You have access to it. Now, how do you improve the coding? So you have attention, all my stimulus. I want to code that knowledge or that um, stimulus to get it into my infinite hard drive. The coding part, we need to understand, it's not like on our computer where we can drag and drop from one file into the other. All coding is idiosyncratic to the individual. And so we need to understand that the time process as a teacher of here's your stimulus, here's your information, here is my 10 steps to interpreting an ECG. That is a process that won't be coded in an identical fashion for our learner. So knowledge is not just transferred, it's constructed in a unique way for every individual. I love that. So knowledge is constructed, not just transferred. Correct. That's a key concept there. Yeah. So every one of us are learning how to interpret that ECG or manage hyperkalemia or put a chest tube in based on some of the social constructs, some of the environmental context, our past experience, how the information is presented to us, the emotional state that we're in, and we're learning it in a very unique way and putting it into our long-term memory. So the question I guess you ask is, how do we do that most effectively? One is to be aware as a teacher and as a learner that there's not one simple way that we're going to experience and then code that unique information. And the second is to optimize the coding moment. So there's a theory called cognitive load theory. And I guess it's kind of cool to emergency medicine. It's a theory that really drives a lot of what NASA does. And they have this this index called the NASA TLX, which says, how intense is your working memory um, operating that? So you have a, a governor, you have a limit as to what you can pay attention to and what you can code. And so the elements of cognitive load theory are what are the intrinsic things? What do you actually have to do in this learning moment? So if I am putting in a chest tube, what are the actual fine motor skills? What are some of the, the decisions I need to make in actually to order to perform that? The germane elements are how am I learning and how, how much space do I have for that coding? What are the process where I'm having a bit of reflection about what's happening and saying, okay, this is interesting. This is how I learn something new. But the part that's important for us as teachers and for and as learners is the extraneous elements. What are all the distractions that are filling up my working memory that are getting me over capacity? I'm trying to put in my chest tube. I'm trying to learn. Those are the intrinsic and germane elements. But people are, are talking to me about the, the blood pressure of the patient or the oxygen saturation of the patient. Or someone wants to come in and ask me for the hundredth time that shift, can you have a quick look at that ECG, knowing full well that I am about to redline, my working memory is overwhelmed, and I can't attend to this learning task, and so my coding gets poor. And the way I uniquely represent that into my long-term memory is impaired in some way because I've hit a cognitive load. So, so what are some practical ways that you can minimize distractions? So if you are a teacher, the 
enthusiastic but novice teacher wants to talk about everything they know around a subject. And they hit to such a level or a volume of points, of pieces of information, that it's kind of like drinking from the fire hose for the learner. And their working memory becomes saturated and overcapacity, and the key point of that instructional moment is lost. So, so I agree. I, I think the key is trying to decrease that extraneous load. And if we take it, for example, to the classroom, and we talked about this in the podcasting on presentation skills, all the work that Richard Mayer did, who's a cognitive psychologist, for example, when we're using our PowerPoint slides or our keynote slides, reducing all the noise on the slide, the extraneous information, unnecessary words, unnecessary pictures or graphs, that actually can help learning because we're decreasing the extraneous information. All right. So that, that's from the teacher's perspective. What about from the learner's perspective? You know, they walk into the emergency department, there's a billion distractions. They're trying to learn how to put in a chest tube as, an, as a good example. How, how do you minimize the distractions there? Trying to have an opportunity for someone to teach and coach you through a process where you're simultaneously still having other elements of patient care that are distracting from you. So I think it comes with having a, a bit of a, a set, preparing for the moment, trying to compartmentalize out other tasks that are not emergent and not distracting and kind of be there in the moment as you have the interaction with the, the teacher or with the patient as you're trying to develop these things. But, you know, I'll give you another example of how we can manage some of this load. And this might actually be managing some of the intrinsic load or the germane load, because you can't, you can't reduce that, but you can manage that. The Braslow tape is probably an excellent example. So a pediatric resuscitation, or if we're trying to teach pediatric resuscitation, using a Braslow tape that allows us to unburden our brain of having to remember specific dosages, we just read it off the tape, allows us to use our cognitive processing power to actually figure out how we're going to run that resuscitation. Yeah. So I suppose for the learner, you know, you're going to have to memorize a handful of dosages, but you don't have to memorize all the scoring, the details of the scoring for every clinical decision tool that's out there. There's hundreds of them. Having a, a general sense of what's in the Wells criteria but that you can cognitively offload, you know, looking up the Wells criteria on your phone rather than trying to memorize it at the time. Yeah. So I think there's a role for cognitive offload. I think there's also a role as a learner when you're looking for that coach to provide some feedback or provide some input on how you're performing. Let's say, imagine um, you're a senior resident running a trauma resuscitation. You might put some bounds on what kind of feedback you're looking for saying, I want you to really focus here on how I run the resuscitation, utilize my resources and delegate tasks and focus less on, did I make the right induction and paralytic choice to secure the airway for this patient? And so giving a little bit more of a bounded context of, here's what I want you to pay attention for. This is the part I want to develop expertise around rather than all of the pieces that you could pay attention to me as I'm running this code. Brilliant. That That's a that's such a pro. I mean, I wish my learners would give me that sort of uh, framework to start when, you know, especially for very complex resuscitation cases, there's dozens of different things that I might want to concentrate on teaching them. But if they give me a good framework for what they want to get out of it from a learning perspective, that really helps me as, as a teacher as well. We've talked a bit about how there is not sort of one unique way 
to process information or to just get that information into your short-term memory. We've talked about cognitive load theory and minimizing distractions. What else can we do in terms of strategies to improve storage of information? If you imagine that each piece of information is this unique node, you want to develop multiple pathways to that node of information so that you have a much more rich network when you want to retrieve it. So if the only way I ever learn about how to manage hyperkalemia is in a lecture, when I actually encounter somebody who presents with altered level of consciousness and bradycardia, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to have access to that information because the presentation in that lecture was about the etiology of hyperkalemia, the EKG manifestations, and then ultimately therapy. No one ever structured it as, here's somebody who has an impaired level of consciousness and who's going slow. So in order to improve coding and to build out a really rich network in your long-term memory around how to diagnose and manage hyperkalemia, you want multiple different takes on that. And so a lecture is a reasonable approach. Um, readings are a reasonable approach. But linking that knowledge in the abstract to actual patient and clinical presentations gives you a different take or a different way to organize and represent that. And so then you end up with this richer network of here's what hyperkalemia looks like. Here's how I manage it. Because you've seen a case and you've in tried to link that knowledge to existing knowledge about something you read. And that way that you read it is also linked to other ways that you've seen it presented in lectures. And so now you have a network that's a lot more rich rather than being very superficial in only one way. And there's a whole bunch of roads. There's a whole bunch of ways to get to that information when you need it. All right. So you're talking about, about multimodal learning, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's sort of the multiple different takes on a specific topic will eventually get that short-term memory encoding into the long-term memory more richly because you have this whole network of, of different modes of, of getting that information in. We can prime the learner. So uh, Flip Classroom would be an excellent example where they can actually do some work prior and then come into whether it be the classroom or the clinical environment. And now you're getting into some more real world concept engagement. I think all of those things can help manage some of that germane load and the intrinsic load that, that Jonathan was talking about before. All right. So in terms of improving storage, we've talked about uh, that there's no one unique way. We've talked about cognitive load theory and multimodal learning. Um, is there anything else? What, what about the discomfort of learning? You know, you can learn something that you kind of know something about and uh, you feel pretty comfortable with and just kind of keep on repeating it until you feel like you're even more comfortable with it. Or you can be the other extreme is like fear-based learning where you're asked these like impossible questions when you're a clinical clerk. From a learner's perspective, how can we challenge ourselves in a way that's good for learning? It's very clear though, in, and there's good neurophysiology around this in terms of cortisol, dopamine, norepinephrine as seeding memory in a more rich and in a stronger way, is that when your heart rate's at 100, versus 60, the type of learning that is going to happen is going to be more substantive. Now, there's a downside that, to that as well, that when your heart rate's at 160, little learning is going to happen. And so, there's a sweet spot, no question. Yeah. yeah. And so this gets to the idea of emotional activation, that you want an, a, 
an engaged, I was about to say aroused, but that seems inappropriate on the podcast. You want an engaged learner um, who's not at a flat lane. Ideally, you want that engaged learner in a positive valence. We want to be really careful about how we can engage our learners. And I'm not advocating for that tyrannical teacher that gets everybody engaged because everyone's full of fear. Um, so for the most part, we're looking for a positive valence, although there is some evidence that um, for senior residents who are challenged by the potential negative outcomes of a case, it can be a very powerful learning. And I bet you if we all talked about experiences we had during our training, I'll talk about some of the cases that had good outcomes, but in the moment, I felt a, a bit of a negative valence because I had some anxiety, not enough anxiety to incapacitate me, but some anxiety about how the case was going to come out. And what I learned from that has been very powerful and has stayed with me through my practice over the last uh, decade or so. All right, let's review processing of information before we move on to retrieval of information. Our long-term memory has infinite capacity. The crux of processing information effectively has everything to do with paying attention to important stimuli and coding those stimuli in a constructive way rather than just transferring the information. Knowledge is constructed, not transferred. The key here is to optimize that coding moment while minimizing distractions and extraneous information. As a learner, ask your teacher specifically what you'd like feedback on before running into a resuscitation, for example. Next, multimodal learning is essential. Multiple different takes on one topic from different perspectives, from different media, lectures, textbooks, podcasts, etc., in different situations will provide a rich network of encoding the information so that next time you're faced with a patient, you can more easily recognize what's going on. And lastly, if learning seems easy or is passive, it's probably not effective. There needs to be a certain amount of discomfort or stress involved, but not too much. As a learner, you want to be engaged and emotionally activated in a positive valence without being overwhelmed. So that's all about processing. Next, we're going to talk about retrieval of information. So let's get into talking about retrieval. We've covered storage. Dr. Pensioner, how can we improve retrieval? I mean, that again, like I said at the top of the podcast, I kick myself the amount of times that a learner asked me a question or a colleague asked me a question or we're discussing a case and there's just that something that I remember learning at some point, but I just can't get it out of that, the back of my brain there. How can we improve that retrieval? So Anton, it's there in your brain and, and you're right. You need to practice retrieval to improve the strength of retrieval. And I think there are, you know, a number of things that, that we can consider doing as, as learners and as teachers, as educators. So one of them we refer to as uh, space or distributed learning. Uh, we could also consider what we call interleaving the learning. Um, and then there's actually uh, practicing retrieval through what's called test-enhanced learning. So those are a few things uh, that, that, that actually have been shown to improve the strength of retrieval. So Dr. Pensner, you had mentioned distributed learning. The learning theory that EM Cases is based on is this idea of distributed learning, or some people call it space-repetitive learning. In EM Cases, we do space-repetitive multimodal learning. Uh, with the podcasts and the Just for Nuggets emails, the show notes, the rapid reviews videos, the app, the quizzes, the EM Cases course, so that the learner gets exposed to similar information, but repetitively over time in different media. So Dr. Sherbino, 
Could you explain to our listeners how this distributive or spaced repetitive learning works and how, how does it really improve the retention of information? Sure. So I'll pick up exactly what Rick said. If you have something that you attend to in your working memory and you code it into your long-term memory, it's there. Unless you fall down a flight of stairs after you had too much to drink. Um, but it's the idea of a forgetting curve. Essentially, you can imagine that the f- one time that you code something and then you, you learn something new, if you haven't gone back to that, within 30 minutes, usually in my experience, I'm struggling to, to get that information that I've coded into my long-term memory back into my working memory so I can use it. And so basically what happens is that we have an exponential drop-off from the coding moment from when we have ease of retrieval. So what do you do? You try to return to the material in whatever kind of format that you've had in a regular way, and you pace out the intervals between review as you have more and more practice. So perhaps if you're on shift and you learn something new, um, here's the appropriate antibiotic regime for a healthcare-associated infection. All right, so that's new for you. Um, And then you go home and you never access that information again. When you come to work in a couple days and you have a similar case, you're going to struggle and say, man, I know we talked about this, but why can't I get it? So maybe the strategy is at the end of your shift, you go home. um, If you're not completely bagged, then you have a quick review of what was that new piece of information that I've learned and think about that. And you might not need to access it again now for a couple days or maybe even a week and maybe from a week to a month. And so you space out these intervals but you still need some regular review of material in order to make sure that you have ready access to that information down the road. That's one of the reasons why it's probably helpful for me in my practice to, to regularly review, um, and EM case is a great example, of core information that I've seen in my training and I've seen in my practice time after time after again. But if it's not something I'm routinely encountering, if I don't ever get to it, then I'm starting to wonder of, how do I manage myxedema coma again? I haven't seen that in a long time. And so regular spaced review allows more readily access to that information. So, and and to add, you know, some studies suggest what they refer to as the 10% rule. So this would be what the ideal spacing might be. And the 10% rule says, figure out how long you need to retain the information for And then the spacing should be about 10% of that. So for example, if you want to retain information for approximately one year, 10% of one year would be approximately one month. That's the best math that I can do. So you want to have those educational interventions and exposures about on a monthly basis. All right. So that's a bit about distributed learning, uh, space repetitive, multimodal learning. Related to uh, distributed learning is the notion of interleaving. Uh, Dr. Pensner, could you explain to our listeners what interleaving is and how that can improve our retrieval of information? Sure, Anton. So it really is very much related to space learning. And, you know, as eMERGE docs, when we want to uh, learn something or master something, what do we do? We we spend hours and hours and hours. We're a little bit OCD and we do it until we learn it. Well, that's probably not ideal for learning. 
learning the same topic, this concept of mass practice. Ideally, we want to interspace or mix related but distinct material over time. So instead of spending hours learning about sepsis, I might want to spend a little bit of time learning about sepsis and then acute coronary syndrome and then pediatric trauma because that probably will code things better in our brain. The theory is that it allows us to compare and contrast different concepts in different contexts. And if you think about it, what we actually are doing in practice when we need to retrieve this from our brain is we are going from patient to patient with different problems. So it actually strengthens our retrieval. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Dr. Sherbino, uh, from your perspective as someone who, who actually helps lay out the curriculum for emergency medicine programs across the country, there's been this sway towards integrated longitudinal learning where instead of, you know, doing all your cardiology in one block and then all your, your ICU in one block and then your psychiatry in one block that you interleave it, so to speak, through throughout your, your training. It's called emergency medicine, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From your perspective, do you think that all programs should be going towards this sort of longitudinal kind of learning rather than traditionally Definitely all three of us in this room have just learned by, you know, okay, this is everything you need to know about cardiology. Okay, you're done that. Now let's go on to pediatrics. So in the ideal world, if you do mass practice, which is neurology, cardiology, ad infinitum, your learning will be impaired versus mixed practice when you push it all together because real life needs to have some relationship into how you learn. And the evidence is pretty compelling. There's this idea of serial position effect that what you say at the beginning and at the end of some period is most interesting typically to your brain and you can code it deeper. And so if you just keep changing gears up, you offer more beginnings and ends. So if you do a little bit of neurology and then a little bit of cardiology, you have a lot more beginnings and ends than you do if you just will do one big long period of neurology. So if you're studying or you're learning, and this is not true of the, the clinical environment where in emergency medicine, it's every case is something different. Clinical practice and clinical uh, teaching in the, in the emergency department, that is mixed practice by nature. But if you're studying or if you're arranging um, academic half days or conference, or if you're putting together a curriculum, something that is very homogenous will not be anywhere near as effective is something that is much more heterogeneous. That's a bit about interleaving and distributed learning. What about test-enhanced learning? So doing quizzes, flashcards, you know, multiple-choice questions. How does that help retrieve information and improve our learning? So as we've been talking about, uh, we used to think that this retrieval practice, practicing pulling stuff from deep in our storage, didn't actually enhance or build retrieval strength. So for example, if I write a test, if I ask my resident questions in the emergency department, conventional wisdom would be that I'm assessing their knowledge. I'm trying to get an idea where they're at, but it doesn't really help with our learning. Well, the evidence suggests otherwise. This retrieval practice actually does build retrieval strength. And this is what's known as 
test enhanced learning. So practically speaking, writing practice tests, doing practice orals, using flashcards when I'm trying to learn something, asking questions of my residents and my learners in the emergency department, even though all of that might create a level of discomfort, it actually does improve learning. So for the person writing their uh, FR exam in emergency medicine, they're going to be using all these things. They're going to be using flashcards and they're going to be testing themselves and they're really driven. What about for the emergency physicians like you and I who uh, you know, are swamped with all this new information that's coming all the time? As a staff physician, how do you suggest we participate in test-enhanced learning? You know, It takes a lot of effort. So I think the challenge is not producing the materials. The materials are already there. Um, In this digital age, uh, you can find emergency medicine-specific question banks. Uh, Most CME that's online will provide uh, questions. Uh, Anton, I regularly get your weekly feed of questions. The problem, I think, more for us is are we engaged with other peers around asking each other questions back and forth so that we have shared learning and shared responsibility. But really, the the big thing comes back to what I talked about before was this growth mindset. Are we prepared in our established comfort positions to really feel challenged, say, you know what, okay, I am going to put myself out there and realize that maybe I don't know all the answers to some of the questions that are are there. The big danger is reading through a, a question bank with the answers there without struggling to try to retrieve it from your long-term memory. Because it's that struggle of trying to retrieve it from your long-term memory that builds that connection and that is that recall, that retrieval piece that's essential in terms of learning and growth. Yeah, it comes back to that effortful learning. That relates a little bit to the Dunning-Kruger effect. I think it would be a nice time to talk about that. Dr. Petzer, what is the, the Dunning-Kruger effect and why is it important to understand when it, when it comes to lifelong learning? So Dunning and Kruger are American psychologists, and they were inspired by the case of uh, MacArthur Wheeler, who was actually a bank robber in uh, Pittsburgh area in the mid-1990s. He robbed a couple of banks in broad daylight, and his face was captured on the, on the video cameras, and he was captured the same day by police. And he said to police he was amazed that he was captured because he had put lemon juice on his face. And he was of the mistaken belief that by putting lemon juice on his face, like with Invisible Ink, that his face would not be picked up by the cameras. You are kidding me. (laughs) So so we, we we can all agree that this is probably an incompetent bank robber. So so Dunning and Kruger hypothesized that for a given skill, incompetent people will fail to recognize their lack of skill, how incompetent they are. And so they did a bunch of tests with, who else? Undergraduate university students. And these tests were around humor and reasoning and grammar. And they tested how competent they were. But they also asked them, how competent do you think you are? And the results that they saw repeated from all the studies, and this is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And on all of the studies, those that were not competent overassessed their competence. So in practical terms, for us as eMERGE physicians and learners, we don't know what we don't know. And being less competent in an area of our own practice actually may rob us of the ability to be self-aware. 
But the good news is, is that we can actually recognize our limitations through various cognitive forcing strategies and this metacognition or thinking about thinking, we can actually develop and learn and get better at it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about reflection and metacognition. Uh, so Dr. Pensioner, can you give us some examples of how reflection and this metacognition idea can, help, again, help us retrieve better? For sure. So two really important concepts, kind of related, not exactly the same thing. So metacognition is thinking about thinking, and it really is critical to help us learn and develop these learning, these learning techniques. So, uh, for example, we can improve our metacognition skills. If you think about it in the emergency department, so much of what, so much of what we do is about clinical reasoning. And we know that we often run into traps and problems and errors because of cognitive errors and cognitive biases. But if we we can think more about our thinking, we can actually help manage these cognitive biases. In a very practical way of how we can enhance our metacognitive skills, we can actually think about how other people think. And we can do that maybe through, you know, quality chart reviews. If you're fortunate enough to be involved in medical legal cases as an expert reviewer, and you start thinking about how other people are thinking, or even actively seeking out our colleagues and asking them for their, their opinion, you know, how would you manage this case and why are you doing that? Uh, we, can, we can improve our metacognitive skills. Reflective practice is a little bit different. If I was going to amp up the the volume a tiny bit, I would say that the best reflection doesn't happen in a vacuum. And if you can't know what you don't know, or if you can't see your own lacoon, it's really helpful to have either a teacher or a peer be that, that check. So if you're in training as a medical student or as a resident, then there is a system that's there for you. I think you can optimize that system if you're a learner by being a little attentive to saying, hey, in this rotation or in this shift, can you pay attention or help coach me through this specific area that I think is a weakness or is a, a growth opportunity for me? And the teacher might say, yeah, I've been paying attention. And I think that's true. Or, you know what? I actually don't think that's as big a priority as this other area. What do you think if we negotiate about attention on this area? The bigger answer or the bigger challenge for you, Anton and, and Rick and myself is there's not a lot of systematic structures right now for my own practice where people say, you know what, Sherbino, we've watched your trauma resuscitations and we see that you are not keeping up with um, human factors reasoning or the emerging literature on the physiology of trauma management, etc. And so I don't have as many opportunities for people to help guide me in that reflective process. So maybe this is a bit of a call to arms to all of us to think about how can I get that peer support in terms of guided self-reflection so that as I think about what do I want to grow, how can I change, what are the parts I want to add and implement into my practice, having somebody that to, to bounce those ideas off and who have a little bit of an unbiased or a bigger perspective than what I can see to say, you know what, you're on track or maybe you just need to, to adjust your perspective a tiny bit because you're a little skewed. So we reviewed storage of information and coding. Now let's review retrieval practice. When it comes to retrieval practice, there are three key elements. One, distributed space repetitive learning. Two, interleaved learning. And three, retrieval practice through test-enhanced learning and commitment to change. So let's break each of those down. First, distributed space repetitive learning. 
To optimize retrieval, you need to understand the forgetting curve, that there's a pretty rapid drop-off. Now, without actively retrieving that information or reminding yourself of that information that was encoded, you'll forget it. So regular space review allows you to more readily access the information that was originally encoded in your memory. The 10% rule gives you a guide as to how often you need to review. Next, there's interleave learning. So rather than studying one topic for many hours straight on mass, it's better to interleave multiple different topics. Mix it up a bit. And that allows you to compare and contrast different concepts in different contexts. And this interleave learning mirrors actual EM practice quite nicely. And then lastly, there's the retrieval practice through test enhanced learning. Testing yourself with flashcards, quizzes, MCQs, practice orals, getting asked questions on shift, those kind of things. And for staff docs, adopting a growth mindset and seeking out opportunities to learn from your mistakes, from your colleagues on shift or Twitter or Reddit, and challenge yourself with self-testing. Think about how you think and what your biases are and find a mentor that you can run cases and challenges by or can give you feedback on your trauma resuscitation, for example. After you attend a lecture or read an article or listen to a podcast, try emailing yourself the most practice-changing pearl so that at a later date you can retrieve that information. And finally, the crown jewel for retrieval practice is committing to a change in your practice. That is, taking that new thing you've learned and sending yourself a reminder a couple of months later by pasting it into your calendar, for example, and then using that information for patient care and even better than following up on the outcome. That's really the ultimate in retrieval practice. Next, we're going to talk about how learning in social contexts can make our learning better. All right, let's move on to learning in social contexts. You know, I find that if I'm learning in a group of people or I'm doing a simulation or something, that that's really helpful for learning. Dr. Pensner, how is learning enhanced when we're learning with other people? And what can we do as learners to kind of harness the power of, of social learning? The fact is learning is a social phenomena. And I don't believe that we can actually learn solely on our own. Uh, this has been supported by lots of theories out there, various kinds of social learning theories. One in particular postulates that as individuals, we learn by watching others. And if I think about my own practice, maybe my own teaching practice, I've learned how to be a better teacher by watching some of our master teachers in our emergency department. Or when I co-facilitate a workshop or a lecture by watching the person that I'm with, I'm learning from them. And so as teachers and learners, we really need to do a better job paying attention to the social nature of learning that you talked about. Agreed. If we believe that knowledge is not transferred, it's constructed, it's really important to understand that it's socially constructed as well. And I think you made me sign a non-disclosure not to use the word constructivism on this podcast. So I'll let the interested uh, listener uh, Google social constructivism and, and read about that a bit. But what we value as a member of a group and what's prioritized and how things are presented and organized and arranged, our peer groups in our learning environments, the social learning environment are really powerful. Um, there's this guy called Weingart on the internets and our social groups, I think are expanding beyond our geographic phenomenon of where you're, which hospital you're training in or which city you practice in. 
And so this Weingart guy seems to have a real profound influence around the trauma management of some of the residents that I supervise and teach. And so how we influence and how we influence each other is powerful and we should be attentive to that and understand that the things we prioritize, the things we deprioritize are all having an influence and how we arrange and then code for ourselves, it's influenced by the peer group, either virtual or in person. So this idea of social learning is actually kind of the basis of the whole foam ed world that's developed since 2012, where we learn together. Let's talk a little bit more about how foam ed and social learning actually improves our learning. There's this idea of community of practice. Dr. Pensner, what is, it, what is a community of practice? How does getting involved in the foam ed world, as an example, uh, improve our learning? So communities of practice, first of all, I, I think is not just limited to the foam ed world, but it's when a bunch of individuals that share an interest then get together and interact based on that shared interest. So when they get together, they're sharing resources, they're sharing you know knowledge, they're sharing their expertise, they're sharing their networks. And from all of that sharing in that community of practice comes learning, comes innovation, and comes dissemination. So for example, um, Anton, I bet that uh, you hang out with a bunch of podcasters from across North America that you probably network with, that you collaborate with, and that you probably learn from them. Am I right? Absolutely. And and I would venture to say that that community of practice, you may not call it that, but that collaboration uh, probably has impacted on you individually as a podcaster and also impacted on the success of EM cases. No doubt. Yeah. So that's that's a community of practice. And I also suspect that your involvement has actually impacted on them and the overall group so that you've been able to actually accomplish things as a group that individually you probably could not accomplish. The part I really find attractive, Rick, around communities of practice is that when you're at that novice level, there's this idea that of legitimate peripheral participation, that you don't need to jump into a conversation around the management of pediatric uh, emergencies if you're early in your career and you feel intimidated by who that core group of individuals discussing pediatric uh, emergency care of the burn patient or of an endocrinopathy. But you can be engaged because this is an area that you're trying to learn. It's an area that's a priority or of interest. And you, as you are on that more kind of on the outer edge rather than the core, you start to learn and develop and as that expertise develops, you're brought into the core, bringing a richness and a kind of a dynamic way that the group is organized. There's not a hierarchy. There's not formal membership criteria, but that it's kept and held together by a shared and common interest in a topic or domain. And it's in that exchange of ideas and resources and questions and new discoveries that kind of is the reason for that community to kind of exist and kind of continue to engage with one another. Getting back to FOMED, there's a lot of dispelling of medical myths in FOMED. Uh, you know, we dispelled a whole bunch of myths right at the top of the podcast. By the very nature of science itself, things that we've been doing for years are often proven wrong. Dr. Sherbino, why is unlearning so important to learning in emergency medicine? So it's not so much a matter of unlearning. It's a matter of evolving. So what we know and assume to be the case as science advances, will not hold true. And so if you leave residency training 
with the understanding that the world is now fixed and there will be no further advances. And yes, I should be using phlebotomy and rotating tourniquets to manage my congestive heart failure. Well, I got bad news for you as your practice evolves over the next few decades. So it's not so much unlearning, but it's the understanding that we must continue to learn and then reprioritize and change our practices as evidence is informed. It requires us to be engaged, but in order to maintain at the cusp of where evidence is going, being involved in these communities that discuss these issues are essential. All right. And we did an entire episode on how to teach on shift. What tips can you give our listeners who are trainees on how they can best learn while on shift? We've touched on a few things already. And then, you know, on the flip side, as, as staff emergency physicians, what, what can we learn from consultants, uh, from students and residents while we're working with them? So I think there's a, there's a number of things that a learner can do for high-impact learning on a shift. The first thing is for the learner to think about one thing that they've learned from each case. And you actually need to be pretty deliberate about this. There was, there was a, a recent interesting study in the emergency department that talked about unrecognized learning. So the resident goes through the entire shift. They're learning all sorts of things, but they actually don't recognize that they're learning this. Through simply asking the question, what did you learn today? you can actually shift that unrecognized learning into recognized learning. So very simple thing that the learner can do and a simple thing that the teacher can do. What did you learn today? Occasionally, we've already heard about this for the learner, putting themselves in that zone of discomfort, I think is going to be really important for high impact learning on their shift. And finally, I would say that you want to be, for the learner, asking your teacher, your supervisor, your staff physician, the why question and not the what question. So the what question can be answered by reading things in a textbook or online. The why question starts getting at clinical reasoning and the metacognitive skills that we talked about already that you can actually develop. So for example, why did you send home that patient with chest pain, but that patient with chest pain you admitted to hospital? Coming back to studying again, this is just one tiny little detail that I'm curious about what the literature says out there is what's better for learning, typing into a computer or writing by hand on a piece of paper? Before we ask that question, just realize that in this room, the average age is somewhere in the late 40s. <laughs> what we think about is that when people are actually uh, taking notes on their computer from listening to a lecture, that they're probably just transcribing. Some of the literature says they're probably just transcribing what they're hearing, kind of word for word. In contrast, when a student is handwriting notes, and I don't know if anyone's actually doing that now, but when a student is handwriting notes, first they must process the information, and then they're taking what they're hearing, they have to interpret it to a certain degree, and then write representations down in brief, brief things, because they actually can't write word for word. And so what some of the evidence tells us is that taking notes by hands instead of typing on a computer possibly improves comprehension and recall and critical thinking and creativity. Personally, I'm less concerned about the method with which someone takes notes, but rather actually the value of note-taking and its impact on learning. And so we know this from a number of studies, again, on undergraduate university students, where they, where they were given handouts with what's called, um, with gaps or skeletal handouts. So that would be a handout where there'd be kind of gaps in them, and they would be forced to fill in the gaps as the lecture or seminar went on. And they found that those students actually learned more and did better on examinations than the students that actually got a complete transcript handout of everything that the lecturer was saying. 
I want to riff off that and um, put a tag on what you've described, Rick, because I believe and I agree with what you've said 100%. It's this idea of elaboration. So if you are a learner right now that uses some version of a highlighter, whether it's actually a physical highlighter in a textbook or a digital highlighter on a PDF, throw that away. That is a waste of time. You are not getting rich coding. You're just kind of looking at stuff. It's in your working memory. The coding is so poor that when you go to retrieve it, you'll never find it. What you're describing is the idea of elaboration. And so elaboration is a really important technique, which says, I want to think about this information that's new for me. How does it connect with previous information I, I have? And how do I organize it all into one big schema? So I just discovered the, the ECG findings of hyperkalemia. Well, what do I know previously about the etiology of hyperkalemia? What is that case I saw of that patient who was altered and slow? How do I think about all that? And how do I write for myself out a little concept map or a more complex handout or that material that I can come back and review at a later time? That process of elaboration is really effective. But just taking minutes, you waste of time, reading stuff and highlighting, that's a waste of time. So stop doing that. Save yourself money if, if uh, a business supply stores have a, a, a drop in their, in their stock, then if nothing else, that's the best thing I've kind of contributed to today. And in particular with lectures, uh, you know, you go to conference and you see a bunch of lectures. Uh, do you suggest just listening to the lecture as attentively as you can and then afterwards writing some notes or writing notes with the elaboration during the lecture? I guess it all comes back to your spaced repetition question. So if you want to capture some key points while the lecture is ongoing, probably capturing some key points so you don't have any degradation of that information over the course of the 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then after that, spending some time where you sit and think and elaborate on those key points and how you want to insert that into your concept map around that content area, that's probably best practice. So you've captured the information and then you've come back at it in an hour or two hours later. And so you've spaced out your attention and your coding of that information probably in two different ways. So your network is a little bit richer so that you can actually retrieve it more effectively a week down the line. Yeah, you just managed to incorporate every concept we've talked about in the podcast so far. Just <laughs> We're done. One and little... <laughs> that's a wrap. Now, this is a challenge that we all have, that there's this huge amount of new information coming out weekly in FOMED and journals, you know, research is just stuff coming at us all the time. How do you suggest that we keep up with the latest and greatest in emergency medicine? Dr. Pensner? So I, I think that this is a challenge for everybody, myself included. I've asked this question of, uh, of many other experts and many colleagues, and probably one of the most intriguing and I think valuable answers that I've gotten back is the notion of chart audits. So the idea that they follow up on every single case that they saw in the emergency department, what their subsequent outcome is going to be. And so it's closing the loop on that patient and that feedback in terms of what the consultant did or what ended up being in terms of the patient outcome. So I think that is probably some of the most powerful learning that we can do as physicians. In terms of how I keep up with what's happening, I do what's called a scanning activity. I'm looking for basically second-order review of materials for the most part 
and sometimes some primary evidence. My caveat before we jump into what I actually do for that scanning is that if we become solely dependent on second-order review, means a pre-digested or someone else has done the work of giving us the punchline or the synopsis, without ever going back to the, the primary evidence, there is a danger that we are going to incorporate and be unaware of the biases that got us there if we don't see the original material. So for things that are really key or that are really transformative or a change in practice, I think you need to have some kind of uh, rigor to make sure that pre-digested punchline of here's that second order of review, you need to do a bit of your own digging if you're going to have a radical change in practice. So here's what my scanning activity looks like. I have some uh, Google searches that regularly tell me when a particular area that I'm interested in comes up. For me, in my academic career, that has to do a lot with medical education in particular areas. In my clinical practice, because I do a lot of trauma care, I'm getting that. Um, I use a resource called MORE that McMaster University has in partnership with the BMJ. And I set in a threshold for here's the clinical relevance, and I choose critical care in emergency medicine, in internal medicine, infectious disease. And then I set a quality marker of, I want really high stuff to come to me. So I get a pre-filter of, here's all the stuff coming from the journals this week. And I look through that and say, yeah, got it, got it, need it, got it, don't want it. So that's kind of the scanning activity. I'm trying to say what's happening, what's what's really working. Um, a lot of scanning will come indirect as I listen to my regular podcast series. And I say, well, that was a really interesting idea. I wonder where they got that from. And I'll, I'll dig into the show notes and find that. And I have the good fortune of I work in a teaching hospital. So I have really, really smart uh, residents who are always asking me questions about my opinion on something they've just discovered. And 90% of the time, I have no idea what they're talking about. So I have to fake it, go read the article. And so they're doing a bit of passive scanning on my behalf. So I think you have to have some kind of scanning practice. And it needs to be as robust and as automated as required for you. My best case scenario is that, and this is not what I have, but as I've been thinking about how to maintain currency and how not to become one of those old guys sitting on the lawn talking about the good old days, completely out to lunch as to how emergency medicine is practiced today, I wish I had a group of two or three individuals where we could regularly sit down, talk about our practice. They could comment, well, I've seen some of your cases come back or I've looked at part of your chart and I have a different take or a different way I approach that. And then we both pursue opportunities for further learning. I want to move on to the idea of skepticism in emergency medicine. So skepticism in EM is said by some educators to be one of the most important mindsets for learning. I mean, even Ken Milne's podcast is named Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Dr. Sherbino, how is skepticism a good thing in learning emergency medicine? Someone who approaches learning with a critical perspective, which is a positive way to call it skepticism, a critical individual will say, okay, I'm giving drug X or I'm doing test Y or my management is Z at the direction of an attending or because that's my, been my pattern. Why am I doing that? What's the evidence to say and inform that? And then the second part of that critical thinking of, what are all the tacit bits of knowledge that are markers and hallmarks of expertise that maybe I can get someone more seasoned or experienced to unpack for me? The reason why 
chest pain patient one went home and chest pain patient two didn't, well, let me unpack some of that tacit knowledge that's there that really starts to make my own practice a lot richer and a lot more nuanced. Let's put all the stuff about elaboration, keeping up, learning on shift together. So first, learning on shift. By simply asking yourself, what did I learn today? And again, emailing yourself what you learned and pasting it somewhere to come back to in a month or so is a highly effective way to retain knowledge. Putting yourself in that zone of discomfort will engage you in a way that helps retention. Ask why questions rather than what questions to gain a deeper understanding of something and be critical or skeptical of pretty much everything. Ask yourself what the evidence is for something you've seen done on shift and go look it up. And then after your shift, do as many chart audits a week or two later as you can to find out what happened to the patient and to reflect on what you could have done better. And even better than that, get a group of two or three docs who can review each other's charts and then discuss how things could have been done differently. Remember that social learning, whether it's on FOMED or rounds, on shift or in a chart audit group, is essential for learning. Share your knowledge, debate the literature, and discuss cases as much as possible. Let's talk a little bit about elaboration. So elaboration is important when taking in information. Rather than highlighting a textbook and leaving it at that, while you're reading, stop and think about what you've just read or what a speaker at a conference has just said. Write it down on a piece of paper in a constructive way that integrates into your pre-existing knowledge base and then come back to it when you get home again. Now, how do we keep up in emergency medicine? Well, Dr. Sherbineau recommends scanning activity. So a scanning activity that includes some primary sources for key practice-changing topics and then some secondary sources using a few different programs that can filter topics for you. So with no conflicts of interest, there's QMED, there's MORE, there's uh, the FOMED RSS feed, there's Feedly. Ask around to your colleagues, try a few different ones and see what works for you. Next, we're going to talk how best to learn procedures. All right, we've been talking a lot about how to store and retrieve knowledge. I want to get on to procedures because there's also an ever-increasing skill set in terms of procedures that we need to learn and the idea of deliberate practice. We've already debunked the 10,000-hour rule. Dr. Sherbino, how is procedural learning different from knowledge learning, and how do you suggest we go about becoming experts at procedures in emergency medicine? Well, I don't think your brain says, oh my gosh, this is a chest tube rather than interpretation of an ECG and say there's something intrinsically different. But there are, I guess, a systematic way that we can approach procedural teaching um, that ensures patient safety and ensures the development of kind of the, some of the fine motor processes that we want. So in this current day and age, I think simulation and using a partial task trainer as the introductory component to learning a procedure is paramount. The old one of see one, do one, or I guess the current version of YouTube one and do one, um, our patients are really not going to tolerate that. Hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm going to put in my very first chest tube today on you, having never used a simulated model. That's not going to fly. But from the efficiency of a learner, the idea of being able to perform a task and get immediate feedback about how uh, to change some sequence or step, that's 
deliberate practice. And that's the, the thing that we, when we use a simulated model, we can do things over and over and over again until we go from a very clunky, uncertain practice to honestly developing some element of automaticity, competence, probably not ever generating mastery in the simulated environment, but certainly some kind of conscious competence before we then um, are unleashed on our patients. So deliberate practice is, it sounds pretty straightforward. There's nothing really the listener is going to say and say, well, I can't believe people are winning Nobel Prizes for this. But the idea of doing something, getting immediate feedback on your performance, practicing again in a cycle that continues and continues until you advance, that's a bit of the secret sauce of education. And I would just add one one thing. So it is practicing that skill over and over again with increasing complexity, Yeah, I think is important. The thing that's glaring here for me is that we do plenty of this for our trainees, but what about for the staff emergency physicians? I mean, I can't even remember the last time that I've had specific feedback on something that I've just done in terms of learning a, a procedural skill. As educators, how do you think we can change the way staff physicians are educated to ensure that we can do things like use deliberate practice to make us better? So I think this is a real weakness of our practice of emergency medicine. When we think about other high-risk, high-performance industries or professions like the military or aviation, the ratio with which they practice to perform is incredible. Uh, I mean, just, just think about the military and how much they're training compared to how much they're going to be deployed and in combat. As practicing emergency physicians, we are not doing this practice or deliberate practice. In some cases, we're not doing it at all. And so ideally, my wish is that we figure out how to actually be doing this deliberate practice, and not just individually, but we're talking about in a, in a team setting, will definitely enhance performance, improve quality, good for patient safety, decrease errors. The problem and the challenge is, is that, you know, our model of care is not set up for us to be practicing on a daily basis. And that's, that's a real challenge. I don't know, Jonathan, if you have any suggestions on as staff, you know, how we can do this. Because it's not just us in isolation. We're talking about an entire team. So in a perfect world, which probably gets into issues of feasibility and operational consideration, having another physician whose role there is just to be an observer and then a coach for your practice, I can't imagine any hospital administrator saying we're prepared to pay for that right now. But this is where the surgeons, though, I think are ahead of us. And so there are a number of studies in the literature where surgeons have captured their performance of some procedure. And, and the ones I've seen are a cholecystectomy or a Roux-en-Y for gastric surgery. And because the laparoscopic uh, tools are all set up with image capture, they have in a, a number of different jurisdictions, surgeon A will share a recording of their procedure with surgeon B. You get some really interesting peer coaching. It doesn't seem to me a that big a step to put into our emergency department's image capture with all the caveats around patient de-identification, security of information, et cetera, that would allow us as emergency physicians, particularly with our procedures, but you can imagine other things in terms of how we manage and lead teams and resuscitations 
for a peer to help coach us and critique our practice so that we can see the parts that by nature we can't see. But that helps just with the coaching part. As practicing physicians, we probably need the practice part too. So the simulation, not not just our observation during practice. All right, I just got to throw a plug in there that we've just secured a simulation center in Toronto to add a second day to the EM cases course that is be dedicated fully to simulation for staff physicians. The last part I would say is we're starting to see a movement in at least some of the teaching hospitals where I work of this idea of in situ simulation, which is not a perfect representation of what our practice looks like and is often directed towards the performance of the team in whole with less attention and emphasis on the staff physician's role. But you can imagine with some small tweaks, this idea of having regular simulated practice of rare or key processes in our own practice, how with minimal interruption, we could start to systematically incorporate that in. But that's not widespread and certainly not routine yet. Yeah, hopefully it will it will become that way. Um, yeah, there's been great work done in Toronto with, uh, you know, Chris Hicks and, and Andrew Petrosoniak. I want to talk a little bit about mental representations. We only have so much time to be practicing real procedures or doing simulations of procedures. What about the idea of mental representations? Can we use mental representations to help learn procedures? So talk to any high-performance athlete and they'll talk about visualization. I think this is probably myth, but I hope it's not. They said Wayne Gretzky, who I have to use a hockey metaphor, I'm Canadian, they take away my... uh, my citizenship, if I don't, would come and arrive at the arena early, hours early before the game, and play through the entire game in his head. And presumably, there's some kind of correlation between that and his nickname, The Great One. So for athletes, that mental representation, that visualization, that rehearsal of performance, I think certainly can translate to the the work that we have as resuscitationists, as proceduralists. When I am coming into a trauma, it's very typical for me to go through how I imagine in as vivid a detail as appropriate all the pieces that are there, where I'm going to stand, what I can anticipate based on on the information I've received from pre-hospital providers, the key and essential steps that I cannot be distracted from. And so I'll actually go through that mental preparation in anticipation of what I'm doing. There's this emerging idea of the idea of mirror neurons which are neurons that can develop and acquire the pattern behavior without ever actually physically performing the task of the mirror of the neuron that they're mirroring, that they can develop sophistication of motor learning or performance just by going through the visualization process rather than actually having to carry out the act. And so it speaks to the power of a visualization that gets into a rich enough detail of what needs to take place that we can actually teach and encode um, in our brain. So, for example, when you get the call in that there's a trauma patient coming who's got a facial smash and is, you're anticipating is going to be the worst airway on the planet, what kind of visualization would you do? It needs to be more than this is going to be a hard airway. It needs to be, okay, who are the people that are going to be at the head of the bed? Who are the people that are, where is everyone else going to be and how am I going to get crowd control? What can I anticipate the airway is going to look like? And having had experience, you, you can very quickly visually draw up a representation, although not perfect, that's pretty realistic. 
what will be the key steps that I need to have the team do? What are the drugs that I may or may not want to consider? What's the technique in the, in the, the gear? And as you go through that in a very vivid way, you can actually see and anticipate and understand all of the physical and the cognitive uh, pieces that put together. That lets you be ready and in being the right headspace so that when you actually, that patient actually rolls into your resuscitation bay, it's not like, oh my gosh, where do I start from now? I've already played out the scene once and caught some of the errors of distraction around not having the right equipment or not having the right meds or having my team position wrong, that I've already gone through that so that I can offload some of the cognitive noise. I can optimize my actual intrinsic and germane load and get some of that extraneous stuff off the, off the field so that I can actually be focused on what I need to do. And how about for the actual micro skills of, say, intubation? Is there a role for visualizing, you know, each tiny little micro step or as Richard Levitan would, would say, incrementalization, visualizing those, those little steps? You, you've been talking about sort of the team dynamics and medications and cognitive offloading. What, what about for that actual micro skill? So visualization works from big macro team performance down to procedural skills. And so it can be as benign as I'm going to visualize how to do this pediatric LP. And so I can feel in my, or I guess I know can't feel, I can imagine in my mind how that child is going to be positioned, what the monitors are going to sound like. I can imagine what it's going to feel as I kind of palpate that interspinous space I can imagine what the LP needle is going to feel like as I go through soft tissue, the ligamentous structure, and into the and through the epidural membrane. Same can be true for the airway. I can imagine this is where I'm going to see a lot of problems. This is where I'm going to be anxious because there's going to be blood pooling in the oropharynx. Um, these are the things I'm going to ask for and. I'm going to be prepared. And as I work through with my DL or probably unlikely my VL to kind of optimize the airway view, this is how I'm going to do it. And if I don't see this, this is the next step I'm going to go through it. So it can be as fine detail as a procedure or as big detail as here's how I'm going to lead a, a, a bigger team. <laughs> As we get near the end of the podcast, not to get too meta on y'all, but what are the best resources you'd recommend for listeners who want to learn more about learning? So with no conflict of interest, I recommend to anyone out there who's interested in med ed to check out Dr. Sherbino's Key Lime podcast. It's incredibly well thought out and consistently has high quality content. Dr. Pensioner, any resources to learn how better to learn? So there are some uh, excellent journal articles. Yes, we're still reading journal articles that maybe you'll put in the show notes um, around learning science and strategies that we can use both as teachers and learners, I think are quite effective. Um, I'm going to do a shameless plug. This is um, a free book that the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine Group put together. It's called Education Theory Made Practical. Volume one is free. You can get it off of iTunes or search it on the web. You'll find a free version. And these are... Chapters written for the frontline emergency medicine practitioner and teacher in mind that takes all these abstract theories and makes them very relevant to what your conference or academic half day looks like or your teaching in the emergency department, how it can be optimized and improved. All right. And let's talk a little bit about the future of med ed. 
what do you think lies ahead in terms of the next five or 10 or 20 years in medical education and, and how we learn emergency medicine? You know, I, I have one wish and one of one wish is what we really talked about a little bit is that I hope to see more team training in medical education uh, for our high performance teams. I think that'll actually make a big difference in terms of our patient outcomes. In terms of my one prediction, uh, I think that we will be putting the social back into learning more social. So again, a recognition of the importance of uh, learning from each other in a, in a personal, uh, real-time context. I don't think in the next 20 years, evolution is going to evolve how we learn in any dramatic way. We still have to pay attention to stimulus. We still have to code. And then we still have to employ process to retrieve it. Those are, that's how learning happens. Attention, coding, and retrieval. The platforms or the environments in which we optimize that, I hope, will continue to advance. Our model of continuing professional development, or CME, I think is broken, where the only requirements for me to maintain my certification in Canada is I self-report whether I went to a conference and a couple of other learning activities with no demonstration that I used good education theory or the efficaciousness of it, whether my practice actually changed. I think that's got to change. And I think the way that it changes in a powerful and and non-punitive way is that we enforce or entice, I'm not sure whether it be a stick or carrot from organizations, for us to learn in communities or networks. This idea of doing my own thing by myself with no other accountability, we've already told you that you don't know what you don't know. And also the social way that we construct knowledge is so important. So I hope what the most dramatic change in a decade from now is CME no longer looks like conference attendance, but it looks like regular conversations with peers, either geographically located or virtually located, about here is how I am looking and auditing my practice. Here's how I'm changing it based on the social dynamic and the interaction I have with other emergency physicians. I have a feeling that the EM cases course is we're going to have to replicated a few times because the 45 spots there are going to sell out pretty quickly because that's pretty pretty much what you said is what what we have made the EM cases course is physicians sitting around the table and hacking through cases and and trying to teach each other with an expert there to to reflect back on Dr. Pensner anything else in terms of the future so so again uh, you know in, but in terms of EM cases as we talked about this sort of space distributed learning or distributed practice is that the notion of continuing education and professional development being a single event, a conference or a workshop is also, I think, something that needs to disappear because we now know that that in isolation is not going to be enough for our learning. So all these things we've been kind of bouncing around in the podcast so far, it seems like this is kind of the seed for what will hopefully happen in the future. Um, I think we've got a long way to go, but uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can get there really ultimately to take better care of our patients. If you could leave us with your top three strategies that you would recommend to help us learn better in emergency medicine, Dr. Pensner, what would they be? So number one, teach others. Number two, make space and time for critical reflection and then do it. 
And number three, as we've talked about a number of times throughout this podcast, both as a teacher and a learner, to think about space repetition being an essential part to our to our learning. Can I quote Vanilla Ice? Is that, is that allowed? <laughs> um, so I'm going to say... Wait, wasn't Vanilla Ice like 30 years ago? The prime of my youth, my friend. Uh, <laughs> okay, so po- just for the, postcards. for the millennials out there, Vanilla Ice was a rapper from what, the early 90s? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So... To quote Vanilla Ice, I think the most important part is stop, collaborate, and listen. Um, and so if I'm going to unpack that is I suspect that the way listeners are currently educating themselves can be optimized in the same way that if I were to be really honest and you're going to see what my practice looks like, you can optimize what you're doing. The processes, I think if you look, go to the show notes, uh, some of them are more challenging than others to change. But one of the big pieces would be to look at who is your social influence and how are you engaging if you're outside of training, because the training structure gives you a natural community in which you engage. But for a good chunk of the audience who are past that, uh, a question of, am I learning in isolation by myself? Well, that is not optimized. And I think you should ask yourself, how can I change? What's the first steps to make that? I think there's ways to automate our practices in terms of having access to material and or reminders about what we want to do. And this is not the panacea speech of technology is going to save the world. But my scanning activities, I don't really need to do much more than open up my uh, podcast um, listener or my email to have all that material flowing at a pre-digested rate and level of sophistication that I want so that the materials are already there for my scanning activities. But really, I think the last part is how do I structure in that spaced repetition for core material? So I'm always intrigued and creative about the stuff that's new, but it's really the stuff that I haven't thought about in a while that's core that usually causes me the biggest trip up in my practice. It's not what the question of how do I treat chikungunya as a new and emerging um, infection, it's what's best practice in terms of the management of thyroid storm? And so is what's the timing? Is it steroids first and then uh, a blocker? And, and having some process that automates that back into it. So when I get that email from you, which has the, the question about how do I manage um, condition A or what's the treatment for condition B, Looking at that and making myself do the deliberate practice of working on that, I think that's high yield. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Guests like you are a privilege to have, and you've helped me reflect on how and why I'm trying to learn how to do the challenging job of emergency physician. I definitely feel humbled about how much I still have to learn about learning and learn emergency medicine on top of that. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Anton, for having us.